0: This episode is brought to you in part by Richmond Graduate University. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly. Richmond Graduate University can equip you to become a licensed professional counselor, integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmond.edu. Last month, the House of Representatives voted to approve the Equality Act. If passed, the bill would amend the Civil Rights Act to add sex, sexual orientation, and gender identity to its list of protected classes. This bill has broad implications on the rules for employment, housing, education, nonprofit groups that receive federal funds, and other areas. Many Christian leaders have opposed the bill, but say they support expanding federal protections against discrimination. One example is Shirley Hoogstra, the president of the Council of Christian Colleges and Universities. This week, she told the Washington Post, I have come to see that LGBTQ people should have the same ease of movement about their lives. They shouldn't run into unexpected dignity dismissing episodes. But Hookstra and others are concerned that the Equality Act offers few protections for religious organizations and institutions that hold to traditional views of marriage and oppose things like gender reassignment surgeries. In fact, the Equality Act specifically says that the Religious Freedom Restoration Act of 1993 A federal law written to directly protect religious freedom can't be used to challenge the Equality Act's rules on sexuality. This week, as the bill went before the Senate Judiciary Committee, dozens of Black Christian leaders published an open letter concerned that the bill would allow, quote, LGBT rights to be used as a sword against faith institutions rather than a shield to protect the vulnerable. Among the signers of the letter are the International Religious Freedom Ambassador under the Obama administration, Susan Johnson Cook, and CT board member, Claude Alexander. We'll link to the letter and the text of the bill in our show notes. The letter supports an earlier legislation compromise called fairness for all, which we covered back in episode 113 of Quick to Listen. And we'll also put a link to that in our notes. We wanted to discuss the Equality Act, separate what it says from what it might do, and outline what comes next for Christian leaders, churches, institutions concerned about a Christian sexual ethic, and loving their neighbor in a pluralistic democracy. You're listening to Quick to Listen, where we go beyond hashtags and hot takes and discuss a major cultural event. I'm Morgan Lee, Global Media Manager at Christianity Today.
1: And I'm Ted Olson. I'm Editorial Director at Christianity Today.
0: Okay, Ted, I think that this week it is very clear what the tension is exactly as we start getting into this. So I'd love to hear your gut check on all of this stuff coming to a head. I was going to say once again, but it seems even more so than ever before.
1: Yeah, that's been one of our challenges at Christianity Today is, you know, how much of this do we cover when? And, you know, we have covered this discussion, as you mentioned, you know, episode 113, which I will say is very difficult to find on our website because that was like a hundred podcasts ago. You got to really scroll down to find it. We will link to it in the show notes if you want to listen to it. The discussion over fairness for all and the Equality Act and what kind of legislation might be helpful. It's been something that we've covered for a while. The folks who support one versus the other versus neither. Those lines haven't changed a lot. You know, what's changed obviously is. That it is, in some degree, actually possible. How possible, we'll get into. It needs to pass the Senate for that to happen. The Senate would need to massively change the rules on filibuster. So there's kind of a political barrier to it actually being enacted into law. But there's a lot of desire on the part of a, a lot of people to make that happen. Yeah, so we've kind of struggled at CAT about do we do we cover this now? Even though like a lot still has to happen for this to pass, it's not just it's not a simple vote. It's uh, actually changing Senate Senate rules that would have to happen to make this to make this pass. Clearly, right now is a time when people are you know saying we <laughs> we don't want to just hold our cards and hold our tongues. This is a bad bill, and we want to uh, talk about why it's a bad bill. So yeah, we thought man, yeah, we should help people understand what's in this bill, and we should uh, help people understand some of the nuances, both in the bill and, and in the discussion around the bill. you to talk about that, even though we have we have talked about it before at CT. But yeah, it's time to talk about it again, for sure. Morgan, how about you?
0: So one of the things that this is going to touch on during the course of our show is the fairness for all legislation. And this is something that we have covered multiple times. And it has been kind of offered up over the years as a potential alternative, I guess, to the... Current Equality Act situation. And I've just found it really interesting in the conversations that we've had over the years. You know, I've been at CT for a number of years now, and Fairness for All has been discussed in many of those years as this particular tension um, the tension between Christian groups, many of which would argue that they do not believe that sex or sexual orientation or gender identity should be considered protected classes. While on the other hand, you have LGBT activists who don't believe that necessarily in carving out the same type of religious freedom expressions have been very much on opposite sides of the table. And then we've seen this fairness for all legislation, which is proposing in many ways (laughs) a seemingly very unattractive compromise to both of those different constituencies. There obviously are Christians who are pushing for this fairness for all legislation. As someone who's been watching a lot of this conversation play out, it really doesn't seem like in any ways there's been any growth with the different sides would want to kind of have this conversation with each other or that they've started to trust each other anymore. I actually found this letter that went out really interesting, the letter that we talked about from dozens of Black Christians as something that I that made me wonder like what it would look like a little bit more to build trust among these different communities that often find themselves at odds. This is definitely not the first thing that has kind of made them estranged in the past 10 years. And we'll get into some of those things that have really weakened the relationship, assuming that there was one, and I'm not sure that there was. I'm definitely, you know, interested about who might be willing to be pushed or who might be willing to give up something in this rather than, you know, given what you're saying, Ted, about this like filibuster, is there some way in which there will be different compromises that will be agreed to that currently aren't in the Equality Act legislation right now? Who is our guest today?
1: Our guest today is someone who is involved in a lot of the institutions that would be uh, affected by this. It's Shirley Mullen. She is president of Houghton College and is kind of a star among Christian college presidents. Definitely when she speaks, people listen on Christian higher ed issues. She goes beyond higher ed, Christian higher ed. She also serves on the board of several uh, other Christian institutions, including Council for Christian Colleges and Universities and the National Association of Evangelicals. For many years, she was provost at Westmont College, and she's a historian of philosophical thought with doctorates in both history and philosophy. And she has been talking about fairness for All and the Equality Act, I believe, for many years as well. This is not her first interview on, on this legislation by a long shot. So she's thought long and hard and said wise things about it. So we're really glad to have her on Quick to Listen. Thanks for coming on the podcast.
2: Thank you, Ted and Morgan. Well, it is such a great privilege to be here today and you're right that this issue is coming to a head. And while we don't exactly know where it's headed, I think the more our community, our world, and certainly the Christian church understands the tensions and the complexity around this legislation, the better we are as a, as a church and as a culture. So thanks for this opportunity. Shirley, let's just talk about, for
0: an instance, what this legislation exactly changes. And I say that because, Many states and cities have already made sexual orientation, gender identity. They've already made those protected statuses. So in what way does the federal legislation differ from these existing pieces of legislation?
2: It raises to the federal level the protection of the LGBTQ community. And so this means that federal funds and everything that operates at the national level would be affected. I mean, right now, these things are negotiated at the state level. The tension that exists in certain quarters between the state and federal level would be no longer there. This would be a national mandate. Probably the most significant part of the Equality Act is actually what's not in it, which is the protection for religious freedoms that has always been an understood part of the American constitution. So in thinking about the existing legislation compared to what's already there at the state level, it really is the federal level of the legislation and the fact that it removes the traditional religious freedom protection provisions that have always been part of the constitutional discussion. In fact, this would be actually the first major piece of legislation that actually excludes explicitly protection for religious freedom. So then these current laws that
0: states and cities have, the majority slash all of those already have
2: religious freedom exemptions carved into them? Well, some would, some wouldn't. But I think the point here is that the way it is right now, there are certain provisions, for example, in Title Seven, around employment, there are certain provisions at the national level that would allow you to appeal to religious exemptions over against the kind of legislation that currently exists at the state level and see if you have the Equality Act enacted at the national level that would remove, again, that potential for a dialogue to continue on between the rights of the LGBTQ community and the traditional rights of religious freedom. And again, there's perhaps more we can get into here. One of the great tragedies, I think, of this moment is that so many people in our society, even sometimes Christians, do not really understand religious liberty as anything but a protection for the notion of discrimination, when in fact, what the Religious exemption provisions have done over the years is really create the possibility of America being true to its original dream of being a place where the public square and the civil community could be a place of protection for diversity, protection for multiple conversations. I mean, we speak of it often as a pluralistic society. So I want to inject very early on in this conversation that this isn't just a debate between Christians. And the LGBTQ community, or conservative Christians in the LGBTQ community. This has to do with longstanding historical protections for the diversity of religious persuasions within the American context. Surely, I'm glad that you're getting into it.
0: And I think we'll definitely be spending a decent amount of time talking about religious freedom on this show. One of the ways that I had understood this bill was that it was going to actually amend the Civil Rights Act of 1964, which is specifically talks about racial
2: discrimination.
0: Is that a current piece of legislation that allows for
2: religious exemptions? There would be provision for religious exemptions within that framework. And so, as I say, this is really unprecedented in the Equality Act to explicitly remove that protection for religious freedom. Maybe another way to say it would be this, that the current framework that we have at the federal level allows for dialogue and tension between these, what you might call protected classes and the traditional understanding of protection for religious freedom. And so what this Equality Act does, it is unprecedented, is remove that room for dialogue. So, for example, in the current Religious Freedom Restoration Act, it doesn't mean that claims of religious freedom would always trump claims of civil rights. It doesn't mean that at all. But what it does mean is that there's room for the dialogue. It, it, it says that the American Legislative framework recognizes these tensions, these competing claims within the Constitution. And the current framework that we have would allow, again, for a recognition of all parties, would allow for the recognition of dialogue and legitimacy. And so, again, I underscore that what is unprecedented in the Equality Act is the explicit provision that one cannot claim any kind of exemption on the basis of religious freedom when there are claims made under the Equality Act. So, so again, I don't want to be repetitive here, but I think the unprecedented nature of the Equality Act that removes that potential for dialogue is really something that we need to pay attention to. And I, I would argue here that it's not something we simply need to pay attention to as Christians, but it affects the whole nature of the public square in the American context, it really changes the landscape because it's saying, you know, instead of recognizing tensions and the importance of dialogue in a pluralistic society, it's basically delegitimizing a set of important questions, a set of important claims that have been understood as legitimate within the American constitutional framework in civil society since the very beginning of, of our republic.
1: I mean, just to get a little bit into the weeds, I mean, you know what, what that religious freedom restoration act does is it, it has, you know, this, this um, kind of three prong test that, you know, I mean, obviously the first amendment is still there, even if the equality act passes, uh, what they call RIFRA, religious freedom restoration act does is it has this kind of three part test where, you know, yes, is, does this create a substantial burden on sincere belief? Does the government have this kind of compelling interest in doing this? And then, and then in this case, I think it's the third prom, which is: is this the least restrictive means of following through on that compelling interest? Is there is there a reasonable alternative? And I think that that, <laughs> that to me, that to me, that's a, that's a, that's that's important stuff. Uh, that that taking away that kind of is this the least restrictive means to change that regarding sexuality.
2: Exactly, Ted, and I, I appreciate you outlining the the specific provisions of the of the Religious Freedom Restoration Act because what that act was trying to do is really to help us know better how to balance competing claims within the Constitution, where that historic freedom of you know religious liberty or however people uh, frame that term, the Religious Freedom Restoration Act really seeks to provide protocols and a way of implementing the notion of religious freedom in a way that does allow for dialogue and and competing claims. And again, I think any time within the constitution or within the legislative framework that we shut down that possibility of dialogue and debate and sincerely held convictions of a large sector of our community, when there are other ways to preserve the core rights of every member of our community. I I think we need to pay attention.
0: Are there parts of the Equality Act that you agree with and that you would be advocating for, you know, in a maybe a separate piece of legislation or in a different piece of legislation other than this one?
2: You mentioned earlier in the conversation, the statements that the president of the CCCU has made about wanting a society where all citizens, including members of the LGBTQ community, are assured of basic constitutional rights. I am absolutely wanting to be part of an American society where every citizen of our society knows that their rights and their freedoms will be protected. They don't have to be always looking behind them. And so to the degree that our society needs that reassurance that all members of the American community have basic civil rights and will have those rights protected. I I want the Equality Act or I want some legislation that honors those commitments. I mean part of what's going on here and I, I I'm old enough to remember back to the Equal Rights Amendment that was debated several decades ago. And you know part of what's being discussed here is does the LGBT community need extra protection, just like you know, back in the days of the discussion of the Equal Rights Amendment for women, the discussion was, do women really need extra protection? And we all know that in the end, the Equal Rights Amendment to the Constitution never did get through as a constitutional amendment. So there's going to be ongoing discussion about to what degree the fears of certain communities really need extra protection. But my point, when you ask me, can I support legislation that reassures all members of our society that they will be safe, that they will have dignity, that they will be respected in their persons and respected as members of the civil society? Absolutely, I support that. And part of the grief of this moment is to have the discussion framed in ways that make it seem as if, One part of the American polity would want to have those basic rights of freedom of conscience, freedom of action, freedom of movement, to have those basic rights stepped on in order to preserve another part of the community's rights. I mean, to put this in very practical language, I feel like what we're involved in right now is a discussion that could be a win-win discussion now being turned into a kind of win-lose discussion.
1: That came up in that letter we referenced at the beginning is that this is definitely a pitting rights against each other rather than attempting to find areas to to promote. But it might be helpful for us just to kind of get into a, a few of the things. Yeah, I think one of the things that our listeners may be confused about is a little bit of the difference between what the act for sure does and then what things are likely to happen as a result of the act. I know that talking to a number of religious organizations about the Equality Act, you know, one of the things that keeps coming up is it doesn't spell everything out. And so what's going to happen is all this is going to be figured out in the courts. Like as soon as this thing passes, it'll probably be challenges to it in the courts and the, the, some of the lines about, again, competing rights means that a lot of Orthodox Christian organizations as well as Orthodox Jewish organizations, Islamic centers are are going to be embroiled in in some lawsuits for a while over some of this. What are some of the main provisions that kind of on day one, uh, I guess, when it's signed, if it were to be signed, would immediately be a problem?
2: Ted, I'm going to answer your question, but before I go to that, I want to come back to your previous point and just comment on it. Because, you know, you're absolutely right that there are a lot of people right now that are just racing and assuming that it's actually better for all of us to wait and let it be worked out in the courts but part of the reason why i believe we need to be trying to look at this in the legislative context rather than wait for the courts to resolve it is first of all the nature of the judicial process is win lose somebody wins somebody loses it's also very very specific and so to just give an example In both the Obergefell decision and the more recent Bostock decision, which have been viewed by conservative Christians as being detrimental to some of their interests, in both of these specific decisions, there was lots of commentary about, well, of course, the decisions here will have to be negotiated along with other provisions for protecting more traditional values of Conservative Christian community or conservative Jewish community. But the reality is, judicial decisions will always be up or down decisions. They will always be win lose. They will always be very specific. And what we have here before us today is the opportunity to try to work out some of these things in a legislative context, which again is one of the great treasures of the American political system, where you can have people hammer out provisions in the law that protect multiple groups and that really engage in compromise and dialogue. And I know that word compromise is often viewed as a negative kind of thing, but it really it really is associated with that longstanding British heritage that we have that saw compromise as a good thing, that created the possibility of people with different views living together. So before I come to your particular question, Ted, I just wanted to make a point there about why It really is important, in my mind at least, that we pay attention to this legislative context that's before us and not simply assume that the courts are going to answer all this. So anyway, let me come back to your question. What are some of the things that, that, let's say, Christian colleges or Christian nonprofit organizations of any sort, whether they're humanitarian organizations or groups that provide support rescue missions, say, the kind of concerns that are very real for conservative Christian organizations would be the following. Number one, the fact that we might not be able to engage in hiring that would allow us to hire in accord with religious mission incarnation, the idea of embodying the Christian mission is so central to the work of whether it's Christian higher education or rescue missions or any kind of humanitarian work or adoption agencies. The notion of embodying the mission in persons, embodying the mission in the people who work in that organization, that is so fundamental to the character of Christian organizations. And so to be unable to hire people who share the fundamental convictions about the nature of marriage or the fundamental convictions about the traditional understanding of a biblical sexual ethic. I mean, that is to deeply affect the ability of these organizations to carry out their mission. So hiring is a key aspect. So
0: Shirley, just to clarify, this is for basically ministries and organizations that might have might require particular statements of faith for their employees,
2: is that the issue well yes it's it's any organization that requires a statement of faith, but let me go one step further, Morgan, because someone might say, well, you know, what about churches? well see there there is this notion there's this very narrow notion that would say that well, churches could hire people that you know embody the religious conviction. But what is really frightening here is that many Christian organizations, including the ones I mentioned, adoption agencies, humanitarian organizations, uh, rescue missions, Christian colleges, these have missions that have activities that are not narrowly religious. The way I would describe it, Christian colleges we are first of all educational institutions but we're educational institutions that are animated by a very distinctive christian mission in the same way that if you're a rescue mission you are first of all a rescue mission if you're an adoption agency you're first of all an adoption agency but you're you're carrying out that work animated by a very particular ethic a very particular religious vision and so the Equality Act would really sever the activity of the organization from the animating religious vision. So does that help Morgan in making the distinction? Sure. I think what you're saying is that essentially not allowing
0: organizations to act according to their own religious convictions makes it very hard for them to be religious.
2: Well, it it makes it very hard for them to be religious in the way that they have traditionally understood that mandate. And so it really removes from organizations the prerogative to hire for the missional objectives that they believe are central to their cause. The, The reason I'm trying to be careful here is something that we may come back to later Part of the complexity of this moment is there would be certain sectors of the Christian community that would not see the tensions in the Equality Act that the more conservative parts of the Christian community would see in the Equality Act. I mean, there are certainly individuals in our society today who would identify with the Christian community, identify with the LGBTQ community, and would say, there's really no tension here that we need to be guarding. So I'm, I'm really specifically trying to be careful in how I say this, because part of what we don't want to run into is where the claims of some parts of the Christian community or the Jewish community or the Muslim community are discounted because they are not shared by all members of those religious traditions. So that's why I was very careful to try to frame this in terms of the importance of not making religious communities or communities that carry out activities that contribute to the social good that everybody benefits from, education, rescue missions, adoption agencies, humanitarian organizations, we don't want to remove from these organizations that carry out activities that really benefit the entire society we don't want to remo- remove from them the prerogative to hire in ways that reflect the particular animating religious vision that supports the work they do for the larger good of society
1: yeah absolutely and you know some of the uh, examples that are that are out there is i think that are directly affected by the equality act rather than things that people will think Will happen as a result of the Equality
2: Act. Well, One would be. So can you know, I, oh, I'm yeah, sorry. can yeah, I come back to it? I, I do want to sure. speak very particularly because you might wonder why I'm not focusing on Christian higher education. So let me go. Let me go specifically to Christian higher education here. I've already mentioned the hiring. We might talk about the tax exempt status, but again, that would affect all traditional Christian organizations. So I want to focus on two particular aspects of the implication of the Equality Act that would be very very difficult for Christian colleges to manage, well, in fact, almost impossible, I would say. First is access to the kind of federal funding of student financial aid. So right now, seven out of every 10 students who comes to a Christian college, including many, many students of color, students from economically disadvantaged families, seven out of 10 students who attend Christian colleges receive Pell Grants, federal funding, federal student aid. And so if you want to put the strongest point on this, the Equality Act is not only actually interfering or damaging the work of Christian colleges, it's actually interfering quite severely with the prerogative of individual students to choose the kind of educational context that they believe would best serve them. And Christian colleges have a very strong record for completion rates and servicing uh, students of color, serving students from economically disadvantaged backgrounds. And so the Equality Act in jeopardizing federal support of student financial aid for these institutions would severely damage the capacity of these institutions to operate. So again, I'll just underscore seven out of 10 students who attend CCCU institutions right now receive some kind of federal support. And then secondly, the other really deeply damaging kind of implication of the Equality Act would be the damage on accreditation. Because right now, Christian colleges participate in that larger mainstream of American higher education, which has always been marked by diversity and has always been marked by rich engagement across public, private, again, many, many kinds of denominations that are part of that network. And so the diversity of American higher education that offers a wide range of options to students, And that can be, that offers a wide range of accredited options to students because accreditation has always operated in terms of judging institutions by their ability to live up to their stated mission. The historic test of accreditation has always been, do you live up to your stated mission? It has not been to take a mandated federal dictate and attempt to measure educational institutions by whether they measure up to that standardized federal dictate. It has been, what is your mission? What is the way that you have presented yourself to the larger culture? And are you living up to that? So accreditation, if I can put it this way, has measured the integrity of an institution. Are you what you say you are? And see, if the Equality Act passes, it would not only jeopardize federal student aid funding, but it would also jeopardize the Christian college capacity to maintain its own stated mission in presenting itself to accreditation institutions. And let me just make one more comment about this, because accreditation can seem very abstract and, you know, well, what does that actually mean? Well, it makes Christian colleges really pariah organizations within the larger work of American higher education. It would jeopardize, for example, the ability of graduates of Christian colleges to be viewed with the same kind of credibility as graduates of other institutions and being considered for internships in social work, internships in all arenas of the culture. It would jeopardize their capacity to be treated on the same playing field as other graduates in going to professional and graduate schools, in perhaps engaging in teaching in the public schools. This is not just something that is a private interest of Christian colleges. This changes the entire landscape of the work of Christian colleges to serve the world of higher education and for our graduates to engage in that mainstream work of promoting the social good. I I cannot possibly state too strongly how important this is. Often this is framed as, oh, well, this is just the Christian colleges or Christian institutions protecting themselves. Frankly, this will radically change the landscape of the ability of christian institutions to serve the larger public good of our society
0: look bumble knows you're exhausted by dating all the must not take yourself too seriously and 6-1 since that matters and what do i even say other than hey <sighs> well that's why they're introducing an all new bumble With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Your brain needs support. And new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine. Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease.
1: I did, I did want to follow up on the first time that these schools are being evaluated, kind of on how they, how closely they adhere to kind of these you know, federal law points and kind of federal priorities. The counterexample that comes to mind is is the Bob Jones University case. And and some of the smaller and private Christian schools back in the day, that that worked through the courts over you know a number of kind of a, a decade or so. But you know, you had uh, Bob Jones losing it, famously losing its tax exempt status, and and it was an area where that the rules on race did come and shape how Bob Jones University was being treated by the by the government, not just on the basis of how they're educating their students, but on the basis of how they treated race. Do you see this as significantly different or different mostly because sexuality and race are different?
2: What you raised there, Ted, I mean, this could be a whole discussion in itself. So let me make several points here. Yes, that is a really good point to come out here. And I think that there would be some who would promote the Equality Act that would say exactly what you just asked. Well, isn't this the same thing? First of all, we are in a different historical moment. And so the issue of race and the issue of LGBTQ rights, while some might argue that they have parity, I think certainly in the historic conservative Christian community, there's a long-standing precedent for saying they're not the same thing. There's a strong literature that would say that the scriptures themselves really do align well with the larger culture, on matters of racial equity, on matters of equality of women. Although, again, if we're going to get into this discussion, I probably should mention here that there are still many denominations that would not support women in ministry, for example. But let me stick with the example you raised here. There's a longstanding tradition that would say there is a difference between the way the issues of race and the issues of sexual ethic have been understood in the historic Christian tradition. The the other point that I would mention here is the issue of scope. So it is true that certain institutions, for a wide range of reasons, and not just around race, certain Christian colleges have chosen decades ago to never accept any kind of federal student aid because they wanted to have the freedom never to be dependent on federal student aid in the way that the majority of Christian colleges now find themselves dependent financially on federal aid. And so again, the difference here is the scope. So yes, there are certain individual institutions that many years ago decided to take measures, building endowments, to take measures that would allowed themselves to remain free from regulatory activity of the federal government. but the the scope of what we're dealing with right now is is a radically different notion than Abjo's institution or other specific institutions which we could mention who have chosen to remain free from federal institution. So I'd say it's two points that are different. I, I think it's an important discussion point you're raising. So let me make my two points, and then I do want to add one further thing. It is a difference in the the traditions of, of what the scripture has been understood to say, of whether the race issue is the same as the sexual ethic issue. I think that's a huge difference. And when you have large swaths of not just conservative Protestants, but conservative Roman Catholics, large swaths of conservative Jewish tradition, when you have large swaths of the American Community disagreeing with the public action that the government might want to take. I think we need to pay attention to that. So that's one point. And then the second difference would be, as I said, just the scope of the impact on American Christian ed- Christian education here. So those are two points. The other thing I would add here, Ted, that I think is important is the debate that I alluded to earlier that's already there within the Jewish community within the Christian community, about how we should understand certain parts of the Christian and Jewish scriptures. There would be certain parts of the Christian and Jewish community that would say that we should not look at the issues of sexual orientation and sexual identity and gender identity in a different way than, say, we look at issues of race, that we should treat scriptural teaching on those matters as matters that are to be understood in very specifically historical context. So that dialogue within the Christian community, that dialogue within the Jewish community is going to continue to go on. But what's happening here is you have the threat of federal legislation intervening and cutting off a discussion that seems to be more properly the purview of those religious communities within their own communities, rather than a decision that's made in a way that cuts that dis- that discussion off and makes one decision for the entire public square or the entire community of the American polity. That's a super interesting thought, there, Shirley. And if we have
0: time, I'd I'd like to revisit kind of how the government is playing. A role or exercising <laughs> exercising authority in what might be perceived in this way as a religious discussion. I did want to just ask, because I, I think this is in some ways is, I don't know if this is like the elephant in the room or not, but it kind of gets to the heart of the debate, which is that there are many people in the LGBT community who feel like places where they receive or are on the on the other hand, every of being discriminated against often occurs within religious spaces. And so the reason why there would not be exemptions or the same type of exemptions um, as there are in other places would be because it seeks to protect people where they are feeling that, I don't know if I'm going to say disproportionately, but where they do experience that. How do you engage in in those arguments?
2: Well, Morgan, I'm so glad you raised that. And this is a very important issue to come up in this context. And this is also, as you say, one of the most sensitive issues, not only between members of the religious community and members of the LGBTQ community, but this is also part of the whole discussion that goes on within both groups, because members of the LGBTQ community and members of the conservative Christian community or conservative Jewish community who have engaged in discussion around, say, potential both-and legislation like Fairness for All, members of all those communities who have engaged in both-and conversations have been viewed with suspicion by members within their own group. Like, you know, well, how is it that you can, you know, jump ship? Or how can you be talking with people who have threatened our safety? So this is a really, really important issue. I believe very strongly that the only way that we are ever going to make any progress on this issue is for actual members of the LGBTQ community, actual members of the conservative religious community, not just in the Christian context, but the Jewish context and other contexts, to actually sit down and get to know each other. Because trust is not built as long as we're only dealing with abstractions when we talk in terms of, well, those groups. I think for me personally, and for many educators in the Christian community, part of what has led us to support both and legislation is watching members of our own Christian colleges who identify as members of the LGBTQ community wrestle very deeply and painfully with how they think about their own personhood and their desire to be loyal to the, to their religious convictions again, I know that this is a very complicated discussion. There are some conservative members of religious communities who do not actually make an adequate distinction in this moment between the personhood of members of the LGBTQ community and the way that persons choose to behave. And I I know that even that discussion of personhood and behavior is also part of the division that members of the LGBTQ community often do not want to make. So again, I'm I'm introducing another difficulty in the discussion, but let me come back to the main question. Whether it's out of fear or for whatever reason, we know that many people who identify with the LGBTQ community have felt the deepest pain in the context of their families and in the context of the Christian church. And so if we are to be exercising seriously the call of the Christian gospel to love our neighbor as ourselves, to really respect and apply basic categories of divine image-bearing— whether you start with the stories of creation, or whether you start with teachings of Jesus, both the divine image bearing from the Old Testament and the teachings of Jesus would require us to treat all those who are our neighbors with the the kind of dignity and respect that would give their their lives the attention that they have not received at the hands of Christian communities so often. So, I believe right now that part of the work that conservative Christians need to do, both in the church and in these other organizations, is to get to know people who identify with the LGBTQ community and build bridges of trust that enable us to move beyond abstraction and enable us to bring together the truth and grace of the Christian gospel. I think we as conservative Christians need to own responsibility for any kind of unnecessary fear that has driven us from the capacity to engage in a loving way with members of our own community and with members of the LGBT community who do not trust us for reasons that are perhaps understandable.
1: This might be something we can hit really briefly, but I'm not sure if this is in the bill itself or maybe an outcome. But I, I know that some of this gets into what the nature of religious freedom is when we're talking about religious. And I know, you know, Houghton College is you know connected to the Wesleyan Church, as I understand it. I'm curious if some of the discussion over this affords maybe some protections for church-connected schools that maybe non-denominational schools and non-denominational institutions might not have under the uh, Equality Act. I know that's come up with an, a number of other kind of legislative, uh, judicial rulings that this kind of narrowing of religious freedom is only pertaining to church institutions more than broad nonprofits or organizations that have broad faith-based uh, ideas. And that's one of the reasons why a number of nonprofits have kind of reor- reorganized themselves as as churches, even though they don't have you know congregational worship.
2: Yes, that discussion you raised. I mean, that's been going on. Really, for many years, as you well know, and you've named that, organizations with explicitly denominational connections have more protection. That was already a controversial discussion before the Equality Act. The Equality Act, I think, would put that at much greater jeopardy. And let me say what I mean by this. We're already seeing court cases, recent case related to Gordon College, for example, where the a narrow vision of the religious exemption was Claimed the idea that that religion is more privatized, religious freedom is more connected with maybe something that is in your personal life. It's something that happens within the walls of uh, a synagogue or, or I should say, a temple or a church. But it's not something that allows you free exercise. Of that religion into other arenas that are not explicitly religious. So my earlier comments about the work of these organizations that is, first of all, education, first of all, humanitarian, first of all, adoption, there's a very, I, I would say there's almost no evidence, or we certainly shouldn't assume that the Equality Act would permit a large vision of that religious exemption. In fact, I think there's every reason to think it wouldn't. I remember years ago, Ted, an attorney who came to talk to our board of trustees, and this was long before the Equality Act. And that person said to our board of trustees, what is going to happen in the world of legislation and the courts in the days to come is that your ability to be both a religious organization and an educational organization, that is going to be severed. And it's going to be more and more impossible for you to claim both that you are doing education in ways that deserve accreditation, that deserve federal support, And that you were doing that in a way that remains true to your religious conviction. To conclude this in a very specific way, the Equality Act would almost certainly mean that the kind of recognition of religiously-oriented education that is true education and not indoctrination, that is going to not be believable in the coming days, and I think the the prediction of that attorney who spoke to our board is exactly what we're seeing. So I think the Equality Act, again, as you hinted, Ted, we can't prove this until it happens. But there's every reason to believe with the explicit removal of the Religious Freedom Restoration Act that there would no, be no more room for dialogue around this, that any claim that would seem to infringe on a claim grounded in the Equality Act, that any claim grounded in the Equality Act would be the the triumphal claim. And that's the concern at root that I think is very troubling. And again, I stress, it's not just Christian organizations that will suffer. It is the rich diversity and the rich range of institutions that make up the fabric of American pluralism. And they actually contribute to the social good of our entire society.
0: Shirley, thank you very much for your thoughtful response to these questions and for giving our listeners a rich understanding of what's at stake in this situation. For our listeners, if you have feedback, if you disagree with this, if you have additional questions, you know where to find us. We are at podcast, podcast with an S, at christianitytoday.com. We are also on Twitter at CT Podcasts. Now is our slow to speak segment where we have the opportunity to hear from all of our listeners who've decided to chime in with their opinions. On last week's show, we talked about discussions about family in light of Oprah's interview with. Megan Markle and Prince Harry. So we got this email from that. Morgan and Ted, I'm a longtime listener and I really enjoyed your interview with Leslie on how best to honor our fathers and mothers. I felt you did a great job navigating how to honor our parents when there is abuse and trauma. This is not an easy thing to do. One thing I wish you would have spoken about more is Megan's relationship with the royal family regarding her race. I'm Asian American and my wife is white and I know the challenges of dealing with white in-laws when you are in a mixed race marriage. My wife and I have had hard conversations over the years. For example, we are new parents and our daughter's Grammy likes to take the grandkids out to shop on their birthday. We've had to be prepared on what to say if our daughter wants to buy an Asian doll instead of a white doll. Another example of this was on Christmas when I found an ornament which had an image of a couple kissing on it, but both of the people on the ornament were white with blonde hair. My wife explained to me that one of her aunts gave us the ornament as a gift, but it made me feel like her family would have rather had my wife marry a white person. So we decided to get rid of it, even though it was a gift. I empathize with Megan because while I haven't received any overtly racist comments, I know what it is like to be on the receiving end of implicit bias and microaggressions from white in-laws. Thanks. Signed, Daniel Harris. Thank you very much for sharing this. I agree. This is definitely something that would have been good to explore more and to talk about more. And I wanted to focus just really quickly on your last lines, which is this, I haven't been received any overtly racist comments, but I know what it's like to be on the receiving end of implicit bias and microaggressions. I do think that all of those things add up over time into making you feel like you're just not exactly part of the family or not seen in the same way. They add to this kind of inferiority complex that can just really build up and make it hard to build relationships much less feel close to people who are on the other side of the family so I appreciate you sharing some about your own experience and I I hope that you know for those of our listeners who perhaps have maybe not as been as reflective over the years about how they're treating their families that are not the same race as them this can give them something to think and reflect about so thank you for sharing that with us
1: yes definitely Here's another letter, briefly, in response to episode 253, Did Russia Limbaugh Reshape Christian Radio 2? When I saw the title of the podcast episode, I thought, I don't really need to hear that. I don't listen to Christian radio. Was I wrong? It built on other material I've been working through, and it helped me understand how we got to the state of the white evangelical church today. Signed, John LaPlante. Thank you, John. And thank you, Daniel. And thank you, anyone else who wrote to us. It does seem like our letters dropped off once we started including a few audio letters. I will, <laughs> and I'm not worried that people are worried that if they write to us, that we're going to make them send voice memos. No, like text is fine. We like letters. We like any feedback we can get from your questions are too long. Your answers are too long. Your intro is too long or Ted's request for letters goes on too long. Any of those or anything else you might have to say, we'd love to hear you.
0: (laughs) Yes. Podcasts, again, with an S at ChristianityToday.com. So now is the time of the show that we call Precious Moments, and it's where everyone has a chance to share something that has
2: recently brought them joy, Morgan, I, I have one right away, and that's the easiest question you've asked me all day to speak to quickly. So we're on a campus like a lot of uh, colleges and universities where so much of the learning has been remote over the past year. But on Monday morning, my week started because I joined the cohort of our London Honors first-year students who are actually supposed to be in London this semester, but they haven't been able to go to London. But they have chosen to create, in a masked and socially distanced appropriate way, a classroom setting where they can do what we're calling London in Houghton. And I met with them. I gave greetings to them. I listened to them share their morning devotions from the Book of Common Prayer and sing a hymn together and then enter into a deep, dialogue about the origins of how our society got to be the way it is, grounded in some of the topics that they deal with in their honors seminar. As someone who's a lifelong educator and absolutely passionate about the work of Christian higher education, I was so energized by seeing this group of students continue to engage in that work with joy and expectation in the very midst of the circumstances of pandemic what about their creativity too right that takes a lot of exactly (laughs) and and they were like exactly creativity and resilience and determination not to let the pandemic interfere with the kind of work that god wants to do in their life through a serious engagement with education so that brought me great joy Shirley, is there places where people can keep up with you
0: outside of this? Are you on social media at all? Probably the best
2: place would be through email. I I mean, they can connect with social media through the college website, and that message would get to me. So if anyone wants to send a message to the Houghton College website, that would get to me. Or also, I welcome emails. I do all my own email, shirley.mullen at houghton.edu. And again, I welcome any dialogue around this issue going forward.
1: Yeah. My precious moment this week is, you know, Morgan, I don't know if you remember a while ago, I recommended The Chosen, which is this TV series about Jesus calling his disciples. Put Yeah, she
0: did a podcast about it.
1: (laughs) That's right. We did a whole podcast about, about that. It's done by this company called VidAngel, known for, you know, like clipping out, you know, skipping the bits of movies and shows that folks may find offensive. That was something that didn't Appeal to me a whole lot. What we've covered these kind of video editing organizations over the years in CT, and I'm like, oh, that's kind of interesting, but not not my jam. I've got teenagers and and preteens, and I am loving VidAngel. And it turns out that they recently went free. They went kind of on a pay it forward model. Watching television with my kids has just become a lot more comfortable where I can actually like go through, you know, my son and I are watching the old NBC series Community, which man, it's just so full of so many crass sex jokes. And to be able to like, to like before the episode, like flip through it and be like, no, go ahead and take out all those jokes, but keep the, you know, odd meta humor about TV and movies. It ain't perfect, but it sure saves a lot of like, oh, I guess there's another show we can't watch as a family. Unexpected Joy. I never expected to be a, a vidangel guy, but actually I'm finding it greatly appreciative. It, it, my understanding is it only really works on, on Netflix. I think it also works on Amazon Video. But anyway, it's an interesting plugin that has brought me joy. Especially oh, I'm on, because as
0: a parent, you can just relax and watch TV.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I can, I can relax and watch TV. I will say, you know, like I said, it's not perfect. You know, you know how you watch sporting events and, you know, you can very much read the lips of the coaches when there's a bad play. Some of the experience is a little bit like that, but it's pretty good. I'm on social media at Ted Olson. Morgan, what was your precious moment?
0: So my precious moment this week is just a shout out to the work that InterVarsity is doing here in Hawaii. And I've been attending their spring break conference that's specifically geared to their students of Hawaiian descent um, for the past couple of days. And Shirley was talking about how, you know, folks are trying to figure out how to be creative during circumstances where normally in-person events are now being held over Zoom or in other different socially distanced ways and in this instance, one of the ways that they have been extremely creative, the conference has been over the last three days, is that they actually sent us a package ahead of time with different um, artifacts that were wrapped and pertain to different sessions of the conference. Then we unwrap them as the conference go down. So we got some snacks from what Ted might remember when he was back here in Hawaii at the Crackseed Store. Are you familiar? You remember that? Oh Ted? yeah,
1: that's good stuff, man.
0: So lots of dried fruit and stuff. Another point, they sent out a postcard that someone on staff had painted of the Mauna Kea protest that has been happening in the past couple of years. They also sent out lip gloss and prayer oil and all these different things that have different significance to the actual sessions themselves. So just shout out for people continuing to wanting to minister and encourage students and folks like me who are not students but are connected to university through these ways. And people can find me on Twitter. I'm at M-E-P-A-Y-N-L. All right, that is it for us this week. Thank you, everyone, for listening to this episode of Quick to Listen. It's produced by myself and Matt Lindor. The transcript is done by Bunia Shola and Yvonne Sue. And the music is done by Sweeps. Obviously, yet another contentious issue that we talked about here on the podcast. So we invite you again to send us an email with your own thoughts and feedback. We are at podcasts with an S at christianitytoday.com. We're also on Twitter at Podcasts and go ahead to Apple Podcasts and rate and review the show. Thanks, and see you next week.
1: Every day, CT testifies to the reality that Jesus is alive,
0: transforming his world and bringing his kingdom to bear.